many of you are probably similar to me, but in middle school and high school, I had a really close friend, and we shared a ton of hobbies together. We paintballed, we snowboarded, we snowmobiled, um, we built computers and played video games. I don't even know how I afforded some of these hobbies, but somehow all my most expensive hobbies grew out of this, this friendship with this one um, guy. And during our senior year of high school, we decided we're going to attend the same college together in Arizona, and we were you know, best friends. Um, and then we moved in together, and maybe you're feeling out, oh, where is this? I see where this story is going. But we, while we did enjoy living together, our main best friends, living together did change some things because suddenly we saw things in the other person that we didn't know about before because we weren't spending you know, every day together, every night together, and day after day, week after week, spending that time with one another. Suddenly there was traits and characteristics and, and habits that we were seeing in the other person that we'd never seen before. And so suddenly... You know, maybe we were annoyed with each other more often or had to talk to each other about things that are bothering us more often or we had to exercise more patience. And the same happens when uh, we get married, when Katie and I got married. We suddenly discovered there was all these things that we didn't know about the other person before we had begun living together. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, now I have to exercise more patience and more grace and more love for you in these things that I didn't know were true about you before. Maybe aren't even, you know, wrong things, but are just things that we do differently so we're going to brainstorm just a little bit. When you think when two people become you know, roommates, whether they're friends or whether they're getting married, what makes it hard you know, for two people to live together? Like what do those two people bring to the situation that make it hard to live together? And we'll just brainstorm a bit on here. So shout out your answers. What makes it hard for two people to live together? Stubbornness. Stubbornness. That certainly doesn't help. Stubbornness is two ends. Oh. No autocorrect. It is on that page. It is here. <laughs> it is today. Like habits or routines that have just become normal to each individual. Oh, see, that's interesting. It's habits and routines that become normal to that person, and then another person moves in, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, that's really abnormal, that thing you do with your hair or, or toothbrush or whatever <laughs> it is. Uh, what do you say? Habits and routines? Yeah. yeah. We'll put different. You know, like, oh, different no. traditions, yeah. I always put my shoes here. Right. You put them there, and I don't like that. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> things like that. So what else makes it hard to live with somebody else? They have needs. They have needs. They start asking <laughs> you for things all the time. Yeah. Before they just wanted things from you when you went on a date or hung out, and now they want things all the time. <laughs> yeah. What if they're like? That's where we're going. I'm not a Packers fan. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but we are. Was that, that was like a under the radar thing. Okay. So <laughs> different. <laughs> they cheer for different teams. Okay. Yeah. Different likes. I don't know why Packers was the specific thing. Because they lost today. Oh yeah. Secured the Bears into the playoffs. So different likes. They like the Packers. Cheese, you know. They are kind of. Different likes, okay? I was like, I thought we'd spend our time doing this today. And the other person's like, no, this is what I like doing. I'm going to spend our time doing this, or, yeah. Uh, in-laws? The in-laws can make it difficult, so more way. I'm like, uh, well, they're around. They're <laughs> 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 now part of your life also. So. Okay, so it's they, the person comes with, yeah, not baggage, that's the word that was coming. They come with, it's a package deal. There's all these other new people. Other family. Different other family. traditions. Family, yeah, different 
traditions? Yeah, less personal space. Less personal space. I would say if they can't communicate with each other, make it very difficult. Can't communicate, that could make it different. Uh, yeah, because maybe before you're living alone, it's like, I don't really need to communicate with anybody when I'm going to be home or what's for dinner. Now all of a sudden somebody else needs to know about all that stuff. From the eyes of my two-year-old, you have to like share things with them. Sharing. Sharing is caring now. Insecurities. You're supposed to do that in marriage. What was that? Insecurities. Insecurities. Oh, so that now they see everything about you instead of just yes. what you were. Yeah. You know, out of date or going out and hanging out, you don't see everything. I'll say like religious practices. Religious practices. Yeah. Like, oh, I do this thing. Don't do that. Any different food preferences too? Rules for preferences. Someone always makes something that smells really strong that you don't like. <laughs> smells. Uh, all shapes and sizes, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just need space. Yeah. Somebody say that I missed it. Yeah. Personal space. Yeah. Personal space. Yeah. 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 Personal personal Oh, you might not have that quiet time that you're always looking for. I think I missed writing that down. No, it's you up. wrote it up there. Did I? Yeah. It's okay. Oh, there it is. Less. Nice. Maybe God's trying to say something. Except <laughs> <laughs> their toys. But yeah, there's all sorts of reasons that could create you know, friction in a relationship once two people are living side by side, face to face. And today we're beginning, we just took a little pause on Genesis. We're beginning a two-week series today leading up to Christmas, uh, and Christmas Eve will kind of tie in with it. And every year we sing, and we did today, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and on the radio, but just songs that are filled with singing about Jesus' birth. And I'm sure all of us are, have put up decorations in our house in some way, or maybe we go back to our parents' house if we don't decorate, and we you know, see their decorations. And uh, many people, even if they aren't Christians, probably know more details about Jesus' birth than the birth of babies in like their own family. You know, like all these, just think of all the things we know. Shepherds and wise men, a star and angels singing and laid in a manger and born of a virgin. And all these little details we know about Jesus' birth. And I don't, I know, I have close friends that I couldn't tell you that many details about um, the birth of their child. And most every house you know, has even like a little scene depicting the birth. I don't have a scene depicting the birth of you know, our nieces and nephews and stuff. So, but we have these little scenes of this baby laid in a manger um, and all the details surrounding it. And so there's lots of stuff about Jesus' birth. But even with all this information and a whole country decorated to celebrate this event, we may not actually know what Christmas is all about. Um, yes, we can say Jesus is the reason for the season, but what, you know, why is he the reason for the season? Why was Jesus born? Why did the Son of God become a human being? What's the point of it all? Why, uh, why is it good news if Jesus' birth is part of the gospel? You know, he's born as our king and savior. Why is it just because, oh, that, that day the king was born, but what, what makes it good news that Jesus was born? And why have a virgin? And all these things. And so these two weeks, I mean, that's a lot of stuff to pack in, but these two weeks on Christmas Eve, we're gonna, and on Christmas Eve, we're going to see uh, that Jesus was born to bring us back into God's presence. We've seen that as a big theme um, in the book of Genesis, bringing us back home to God and to his presence. So we're going to call, or I guess we aren't calling it, I'm calling this series, uh, God's Christmas Presence. See what I did there? Cool. God's Christmas Presence. So, uh, but in our passage this evening, 
we see that God and sinners are incompatible roommates. And when you think about what makes it hard for two people to live together, um, God says, it's impossible for me to live together um, with someone who's sinful, um, with someone who rebels against me, who resists my authority over their life. Um, and because God and sinners do everything the opposite of one another. And so we named these things. We could have named more things. You know, what makes it hard for two people to live together? Maybe stubbornness gets pretty close, but it's two sinners. You know, it's two sinners coming and trying to live in the same house. Two selfish people trying to live in the same house. Two people, you know, who want the world to revolve around them coming into the same house. And there's going to be um, conflict when that happens. And so God, when he is in the presence of sinners, there's conflict there. The big question this passage answers is, what makes God's presence safe rather than dangerous for sinners? What makes God's presence safe rather than dangerous for sinners? What makes God's presence safe rather than dangerous for sinners? And we're going to break this passage down into three parts. Uh, we, did chapter, we read chapter 33, and we're going to go over into chapter 34, uh, and then we're going to come back to that big question. So, but the first part... Of chapter 33 tells us the danger of God's presence. The first three verses, chapter 33, verses 1 through 3, tell us the danger of God's presence. In, a verses, in those verses, we see that God's presence is dangerous for the people of Israel. He's like, I, uh, I'm going to give you this land that I promised to give you, uh, but I can't lead you into it personally. I have to send an angel. I have to send you know, somebody else uh, that works for me with you. I can't personally be present with you because if I am, I'll just consume you on the way. Um, and God's a, a just judge, um, and he will deal with their sin if he goes and is present among them. And if we uh, go back, we see that God's personal presence with them would be dangerous. And if we go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, we see that that's the case. Uh, even back in Genesis 3, we've been talking about Genesis 1 and 2. You know, this, this is almost kind of like fast-forwarding in the story from where we've been. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates this place that he wants to be at home with humanity, them in his presence and him in their presence. But Genesis 3, Adam and Eve say, you know what? Uh, we'd actually like to be the, the king of our own lives, and so we're going to run things our way. Um, and then God comes and he says, there's a consequence to this. You can no longer live in my presence. So they get sent out of the Garden of Eden. Um, and from that point forward, humanity is in exile from God, alienated from God, separated from God. And that's, uh, as one of my pastor friends says, God's presence is a blessing and his absence is a curse. And so God says, you can't be in my presence anymore. That's the penalty for uh, rejecting my authority over your life. And, and then we saw with Abraham and his family, God says, I'm going to bless you to bless all the other peoples of the earth. He wants to bring the blessing of his presence back to humanity. And so from there, we met Abraham, and then Isaac, his son, and then Jacob, his son. And then fast forward 400 years, and that's where the book of Exodus starts to take place because the, that family grows into a nation and they get enslaved in Egypt and then God hears their prayers, hears their outcry uh, and then God says, okay, I'm going to send this guy Moses. He's gonna, you're going to lead my people out of slavery um, you're, and you're going to bring them out so that they can worship me. And then even in that, as he's telling him this, he says, my desire is that I would dwell among you. God was with Abraham. God was with Isaac. God was with Jacob. We heard that phrase for each of them. And now God says, I want to be with this nation that has grown out of you. And so they're rescued from slavery. They come to this mountain where God appears in crazy thunder and flashes of lightning, this big cloud. And they're uh, rightfully terrified. 
Um, cause if you ever heard lightning or something strike once next to you, it's kind of terrifying. But this is just this mountain that's just going crazy with lightning and thunder. And God speaks to them. He says, I've saved you out of Egypt so you can be my people. And then he gives them what we often uh, call the Ten Commandments. Um, but really, it's kind of like the Ten Commitments. I've saved you and I'm committed to you. I've already proved how committed I am to you. And here's what I would like from you. Um, here's what I'd like you to be committed to. And you can think of this moment... Um, like a wedding ceremony. Both of them are pledging their love and their faithfulness and commitment to one another. And God has kind of brought them up to the altar. And he's like, okay, here's what I've done. I'm committed to you. Here's what I'd like you to uh, commit to me. And so uh, he asks for this commitment from them. And they say, okay, we'll do it. And then afterwards, Moses goes up on the mountain himself for 40 days. And he's getting more instructions from God. And one of the primary things God is talking to him about is uh, how to build this thing called the tabernacle which is just sort of like a, a tent that you can move around. And God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to make my presence um, uh, dwell in this tabernacle tent structure that's going to be literally dwelling among you. It's going to be in the middle. All the people would line up when they're on the move and the tabernacle is in the middle. So that was how he's going to dwell among them. But God, he's given these strict instructions on the mountain to Moses. The people are down waiting at the base and they become impatient. And so they talk to Aaron, a guy helping Moses. They talk him into creating a statue of a golden calf for them to worship. And if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, uh, you know the first two. The first one is, shall have no other gods before me. You worship me and me alone. Second is, don't create any carved images. Don't create any statues for, to worship because I'm not you know, a physical thing. And you're worshiping a created thing if you do that. And so the first two commandments um, are what, that's what God says, is what he sees as most important. And then what do they do? Um, they're breaking the very first two commandments. They're like, please create this golden statue thing so that we can worship it. So they're putting a God before him and they're creating a carved image to worship. And they've just had their wedding ceremony. And it's like they're not even home from the honeymoon yet. And they're already breaking their vows. To God, And that can kind of ma help you feel like how serious this is. They literally just said, we will not do this. Forty days pass. We're kind of impatient. And let's, let's do something <laughs> to break this. Now on the mountain, God tells Moses, he's like, here's what's going on down there. And so he sends them down. Moses reprimands them. And it's here that chapter 33 picks up. That all happened in chapter 32. And God tells them, no, I'm still going to give you this land. I promised it to your ancestors. I promised it to Abraham. I'm not going to revoke that. I'm still giving you the land. But I can't go with you. If I do, I will consume you. And he says, um, if I did, I'd consume you because you're a stiff-necked people. And you know, when you have a stiff-necked, you, you know, have a hard time turning. Or maybe an animal hooked up to a plow or something, you can't like, turn it or something like that. But it's this stubbornness and this resistance. They have this resistance to his lordship, his kingship, um, his authority over them. So he's like, man, you're rejecting my kingship. You're resisting it. I can't be among you. That's, I'm execute justice. I'm holy. I'm committed to it. And so that means that he, if there's an act of rebellion against his kingship, he's not just going to let that slide because that's not what a good judge or a good king does. He doesn't just let chaos break out in his kingdom. And so this is why God's presence is dangerous um, to them is because they resist his lordship. And so we move to section two. And even though it's dangerous, we learn in section two that there's this desperate desire for God's presence on the part of Moses and the people. And this is in chapter 33, verses 4 through 23, if you like writing such things down. But hearing God's not going to be present with them, the people mourn. They're, 
they're sad about it. And so it's like, even though they broke um, their vows, um, they do respond in a good way. They're mourning. They're like, man, we, you know, we messed up. Um, and then we're told about Moses' practice. He, before the tabernacle was constructed, because remember, he's on the mountain getting instructions for it. That gets interrupted. Comes back down, and God's like, I can't do this tabernacle thing. I would just consume them. Um, but before all that, there was this thing called the tent of meeting. Moses would go out to it. God would come down, represented by like this pillar of cloud. And just, that's crazy to think about. Um, and he would go in there, and he'd talk to God. And just had this back and forth conversation of God telling him what to do, him making requests or whatever um, that looked like. And then the people would stand at their own tent doors and they would worship every time they saw this cloud um, come down to represent God's presence. And so uh, God, uh, Moses goes out there. Um, he goes to plead with them. God just said, I can't go up among you. And so he goes out there to plead with them. They have this desperate desire for God to be with them. And he makes two requests. So first in verse 13, he asks God, he says, show me your ways so that I may know you. Show me your ways so that I may know you in verse 13. And God's ways, think about it like the path you walk. Like your ways are, are your way of life, what you do, um, how you conduct yourself. And so Moses' request is, you know, please show me your ways, how you take action, how you conduct yourself, how we can walk in that path as well. And he's like, this isn't just for me, but this is for your people. Consider your people. We need to know what your ways are. And he tells them, um, your presence with us is what makes us distinct. It's what makes us special and unique. And if you aren't with us, we're just like everybody else. We're just you know, like the other nation next door or, or whoever it is. And God is still going to give them the land. But Moses knows this land doesn't matter without God. Moses knows that anything God gives isn't worth anything if we don't have God with us. And, and we need to, it's a good mindset for us to learn from. We need to learn from that mindset. Uh, do we value what God can give us more than God himself? If God would say, you know what? I would give you every single thing you want, um, but I won't be with you. Would we choose it? Would we choose our whole list of prayer requests if God would said, okay, you can choose between me answering every single one of those prayers or me being with you? Like, which one would we choose? If we had to choose between all the good things in our life and God, would we choose him? That's a question we need to evaluate for ourselves. And God responds by telling Moses, okay, my presence will go with you. So that's his first request, show me your ways. Second, in verse 18, Moses asks God to show him his glory. God, please show me your glory. And Moses doesn't only want to know God's ways, you know, how does he conduct himself? He also wants to know God's personally, his person. He's like, please show me your glory. Please show me your presence. And at this point, you know, Moses is desiring assurance. There's a real threat here. I mean, this, their rejection of his kingship is a real threat that if they continue to go in that way, God would not be able to be with them. And Moses is devastated by this. He knows they need God. And if God leaves them, they'll be just as lost as everyone else. And so as Israel's representative, he wishes to see God's glory. And, and God's going to give him what he requested. But his presence is dangerous even to Moses. And so look back at chapter 3, sorry, chapter 33, verses 19 through 23. God says this, Moses said, please show me your glory. Uh, verse 19 says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, 
I'll put you in a cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What Moses is about to have is an up-close and personal encounter with the presence of God's glory and his goodness. God, God says, I'll make my goodness pass by you. And then he says, I will show you my glory. He's going to have like this display of God's glorious goodness. But at the same time, he must be shielded from experiencing it directly. Otherwise, he would be consumed like everyone else. So this is where we come to this encounter in the third part of our passage in chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. And chapter 33 surfaces this big problem. God's presence uh, that we desperately desire is at the same time very dangerous to us. Something that's dangerous to us, but it's something we desire. It's something we need. And we cannot be in God's presence without being consumed. And yet we need God's presence in our lives. And so there's this, there's this problem, and God's bringing it to the surface um, through this thing that they did with the golden calf. And God created us for his presence. We need his guidance, his care, his protection. We want to know him, be close to him, and walk with him. But at the same time, because we resist and reject his authority, the penalty for that is exile and alienation and death. We need his presence, but we can't be in it. And so the question, the big issue this raises is, how is this going to be resolved? God wants to be in their presence, but he can't. So how is this going to happen? And the beginning of chapter 4 tells us how. It's through God's person. God's person. And God's person means who he is. His character, his attributes. There's God's works, and then there's God's person. Um, what he does uh, and who he is. And Moses asked to see God's glory, his majesty, his splendor, his weightiness. And God says, I'll make my goodness and my glory pass by you. And verses 1 through 4 prepares for this encounter in chapter 34. So let's reread those verses. Or not reread, let's read them for the first time. Chapter 34, verses 1 through 4. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And on these two tablets uh, of stone, God's going to write his ways for the people. Um, the way they're going to follow him. The two tablets of stone uh, had the words of the covenant. This is how we're committing to each other, Israel. And God wrote them um, in tablets of stone. And they were stored, actually, in the Ark of the Covenant, which was like this box that was in the tabernacle. And it was like at the heart uh, of this people is this commitment that God has made and this commitment they've made to him um, and also God's presence. And so Mer Moses' first request was to be shown God's ways. And so God's like, bring the tablets up. I'm going to write them on those for you again. In verses 5 through 7, God fulfills Moses' second request to see his glory. But in it, Moses is also learning about God's ways. So look at um, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. If the people of Israel were on Amazon 
looking for a coffee cup with an inspiring verse on them. Uh, there would be plenty of mugs with verses 6 and 7 on them because verses 6 and 7 are like coffee mug verses for the people of Israel. If you go through the Old Testament, there's several times where these exact verses are, are quoted as encouragement. And actually in one case, um, at, in anger, uh, Jonah the prophet, he's sent to a people that he doesn't like. God ends up forgiving him. And then he's like, you know, see, I knew you were a God who was gracious and bounding in steadfast love and merciful. And so you know, they're uttered in you know, anger there that God would forgive people that were so wicked. But then other times they're often uttered as um, just these very precious verses to the people of Israel because they contain truths for them that God himself proclaimed. God, God's own words about himself proclaimed to Moses for the nation. And they're good news for us as well. There's, it says they're proclaimed. And I like to think of it, they're proclaiming the good news of who God is. And because God is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever, the same is for us. We, they come as good news for us too. And for Moses, in this moment, and for the people of Israel reading it later, these aren't just like abstract principles like, okay, what's God like? You know, let's brainstorm some cool principles or, you know, characteristics, attributes, what God is like. But remember, when is God proclaiming these? He's proclaiming all these right after the people had messed up big time. They broke their, their vows to God um, before the ink is hardly even dry on the marriage certificate. It's like they're still on the honeymoon and they're already breaking their vows. They just committed to God. They've been unfaithful. And it's fresh off the amazing events of the ten plagues, crossing the Red Sea, thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai, and they construct this pathetic statue of a baby cow to worship instead of the God who just did all of these things. They've just been rescued from slavery by God. And this is how they thank him. And if we think about our own lives, it's so easy to look at the Israelites, anybody in the Bible, and be like, well, I would never do that. Um, but even in our own lives, maybe in your personal time with God, you open your Bible and you, read, you could read this passage and then... The, in the next moment, we could act completely contrary to it. Or we come uh, to a worship service and we hear a sermon and we sing God's praises. And then the other 167 hours of the week, we resist his authority over our lives. We resist living in his ways. We resist doing what he would want us to do. And instead of loving other people and loving him, um, we love ourselves. And we look out for ourselves and we look for our needs to be met. You know, think about these things. I talked about, maybe if you, why is it so difficult? Like, why are we so stubborn? Why do we find other people's habits and routines annoying? Why do we have trouble sharing? You know, it's because we're selfish. We're looking out for ourselves. And even as we hear these words, and it's like, yeah, I do do that, we're still going to go home and struggle with these things. And so it's like we're the same as the Israelites. And it's in this, it's in response to all that that God tells Moses, what he's like. It's in response to their sin, their rebellion, their unfaithfulness, their lack of commitment that God tells them, you know what, I'm a God who's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And these characteristics have a specific context. Or context. They're not just abstract attributes floating around up there. This is how God responds to sin. And when, it, when we enter into a relationship with God through trusting in Jesus, this is how he responds to our sin. This is how he treats uh, his people whom he saved out of slavery. And he says, now I'm, I'm committed to you. And so when you mess up, when you fail, 
Um, when you fall short, these are all the ways that I respond to that. And the big question this passage answered is, what makes God's presence safe rather than dangerous for sinners? And the answer is two parts. I'll give them right in a row. First, to be safe in God's presence, we need God's pardon. To be safe in God's presence, we need God's pardon. What makes God's presence safe rather than dangerous for sinners? To be safe in God's presence, we need God's pardon. Second, to get God's pardon, we need God's person. To get God's pardon, we need God's person. And pardon means forgiveness. We need God to forgive us for all the times we've been unfaithful, all the times we've sinned, all the times we've broken his commandments. But God does not have to pardon us. He would be totally fair, totally just, totally in his rights to say, that's the penalty. You know, when we break the law, when we go into court, um, the judge's job is to uphold the law. And so God, to say, yeah, that's your consequence. You broke the law. Um, I'm upholding the law. I'm a just judge. We shouldn't expect less from God than we expect from judges here on earth. But, and so to pardon us would be an act of grace, to get what we don't deserve. We aren't entitled to forgiveness. We don't deserve it. And that's why to get his pardon, we need his person. If God were not merciful and gracious, we would have no hope. If he simply was a judge upholding the law, we would have no hope. You'd be doomed to never be in his presence again. And the good news is that he is merciful and gracious. And for the people that he's committed to, um, there's no sin that, can be un that can't be forgiven. Because he names all three of them. Sin, iniquity, transgression. If you look in the Old Testament, those are the th all three of the words that are used for breaking God's laws or, or not obeying him in the Old Testament. They all have kind of a different shade of meaning to them. But God says... Doesn't no matter where you are on the spectrum, no matter how bad it is, um, no matter how wicked it is, I can still forgive it. All any any type of sin. And this is how Moses prays after God declares his person to him in verses eight through nine. This is what he says. Um, we can hear his prayer. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, "If now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people." and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And in all this, you know, Moses is praying, he's acting as this mediator between the people and God. And he's going to God in place of the people, and he's talking with God, and he's asking for forgiveness, and he's talking about God's character back to God and saying, like, this is the kind of God you are and we need you. And he's representing the people on their behalf. And so and this is where we come to Christmas and so Jesus, uh, here's one of the um, uh, things he fulfills in the New Testament. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Moses. Everything that Moses is and everything Moses represents, Jesus comes and he does it better. Jesus was born to be this mediator between God and us. Paul writes in um, 1 Timothy, there's one, God, there's one mediator between man and God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Son of God was born to represent humanity before God. And if you think about Moses, I mean, he's working in this role um, to bring forgiveness to the people. But Moses, while he is an exceptional man, he's not a perfect man. He's already committed murder in his life. He murdered an Egyptian. When God gives him the mission to lead his people, Moses says, I can't do that. Please send somebody else. And so he's afraid. He's doubting. He doesn't think God's strong enough. He's you know, looking at himself and saying, this can't be done. 
And then later on, Moses is going to disobey God, uh, and he does something opposite of what God says, and so he misrepresents God's character to the people. And then God says, you know, you're not able to enter the promised land because of that. And so Moses is far from perfect. It shows that even Moses isn't the mediator we need. He needs God's grace and forgiveness just as much as we do. And there's many aspects of Moses' character that are commendable and we should emulate. But he can't say to us, if you become just like me, you'll become everything God wants you to be. Moses isn't a a perfect man. And plus, Moses dies. So now who's the mediator? He can't be the mediator. He can't represent us before God forever. He can't intercede on our behalf forever. And that's why after Moses' death, the people look forward to a day when God would raise up a prophet, a leader, a mediator like Moses. And Jesus is that mediator. God, the Son, became flesh. And you wonder why. Why born of a virgin? Well, it's because Adam was the one who committed that original sin. And so everyone who's born with Adam gets that, you know, if you think about these lights, the, the power, if you unplug it, or take one light out or whatever, you unplug it, it disconnects power from all of them. And so Adam uh, disconnected himself from God's life, um, from God's presence, from what God had to give. And so every single light down the line is therefore disconnected. And so even if you're that light down here, it doesn't matter because Adam disconnected you over here, even if it's that far distance. And Adam disconnected us um, from God. And we all are born into the same sinful nature, the same resistant hearts um, to God's lordship um, that Adam had too. But Jesus was born as a virgin. So he wasn't born from Adam. He was born by God. So now he could be this perfect mediator, this mediator that didn't have this resistant heart, who was um, able to not have uh, Adam's original sin. And then Jesus didn't stay dead after he died for our sins. He died as our substitute, so we could be pardoned. He paid the penalty, but then now he lives, and so now he can be our mediator interceding for us, representing us before God forever and representing God to us. And what's even more than that, um, Jesus comes to live with us. He sends the Holy Spirit to live in us. And so we have these resistant hearts, and Moses couldn't do anything about that. I can't do anything about your resistant hearts. You can't do anything about my resistant heart. But God says, I'm going to not just come and dwell you know, in a tent in the middle of you, I'm going to come dwell in you. Now you're the tent. Now you're the temple. Now you're the tabernacle. And so we might look at Moses and be like, whoa, wouldn't that be cool if you know, I could go out to this little tent of meeting and God would come on down with a cloud and we can be jealous of Moses. But if Moses looking down from heaven, seeing us, he's like, are you crazy? Like you have God in you all the time. You don't have to go to this tent and have a cloud come down. You can always talk to God in that intimate way that I was able to talk to him. And so Jesus sends us to remove that resistant heart from us, to write God's law on our heart. Those tablets of stone are now written on our hearts, so now we have the power to live for God. But for the people of Israel and for us, God's presence was physically close, and yet they were relationally far. And it's easy, I hear Christians and people who don't believe alike looking and being like, wow, if God showed up like he did for Moses and Israel, you know, then I would believe. You know, people who don't believe say, then I would believe. Man, if I saw a miracle like that, then I would believe. Or we say as Christians, like, wow, yeah, if God was, if I had a little tent in my backyard, my little, you know, Walmart tent popped it up out there, and God's coming down in a cloud every day, I can go meet with him, do my little quiet time out there. Oh, it would be so easy to follow him. But then you look, we read the story with Israel, and it's like, well, they had all that. And yet their hearts were still resistant. Seeing powerful acts of God, 
know, you can even argue, I mean, we see creation all the, every day and powerful act of God, and yet that doesn't change the human heart. It's only God coming to live with us. And so how do we fail to enjoy God's presence today? First, we can fail to realize the goodness of his presence. We can fail to realize the goodness of his presence. And we can become impatient. And we create little statues or you know, whatever it is and we worship him. And we can easily take it for granted or even forget about it. Like, oh, I'm just going to, like, you know, how often can we go a whole day without even thinking about God's presence in us, dwelling in us? And so we can take it for granted and forget about it and not pay attention. And so we re- fail to realize the goodness of his presence. Second, we can fail to realize the badness of our sin. We can fail to realize the badness of our sin. And if we do this, we're going to try to enter God's presence on our own merits, and we're going to be rejected. And our only hope is on the mercy and graces of God. And that's what leads us to, okay, well, great, that's all fine in principle. How do we actually, like, walk in with God? How do we actually experience as God uh, his presence in our daily lives. Well, through Jesus. Through Jesus, yeah, exactly. Jesus is the only way. Je- and looking at Jesus, um, I'll actually hop back to Jesus in a second. Well, first, we enjoy God's presence by surrendering to his lordship. We don't resist or reject God's lordship like the Israelites did. If we want a daily, moment by moment connection with God, we need to, we need daily, moment by moment, surrender to his lordship over our lives, saying, would you direct me? Would you direct my actions, my purposes, my plans for today? Would you let your will be done? And it's, if we don't surrender to his lordship, it's like having this GPS on our phone telling us where to go, but we've turned the volume down to zero, and so we're actually just you know, doing whatever we want anyway. It's like God gave us the spirit, um, and unless we're surrendering to what the spirit wants and trying to listen, it's just like we've turned his volume down to zero. And second... So come back to that. We enjoy God's presence by remembering his person. We enjoy God's presence by remembering his person. We need to drink deeply from the truth about who he is. When we come to the New Testament, looking at Jesus, Jesus was the perfect display of God's character. Every single attribute we see in here was displayed by Jesus. So you're like, how is God God responding to me right now when I'm doubting? How is God responding to me when I'm scared? How's God responding to you in my sin? And Jesus responded actually in a multitude of ways to people, even people struggling with the same issue. Jesus responded to them in different ways using his own wisdom. But if you want to know how God's responding to you, how God interacts with you, look at how Jesus interacted with people. And remember all these attributes because we enjoy God's presence when we're convinced that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't treat us as our imperfections and our failures and our selfishness and rebellion deserve. He, he meets us in our weakness and our neediness and doesn't reject us and turn us away. And so if you believe that your weakness, your neediness, your sinfulness, your imperfections and failures separate you from God and somehow you have to like work your way back into his presence, you're never going to feel close to him because there's no amount of work you'll ever do or else you'll feel close to God in the weeks when you're like, you know what, I'm doing pretty good this week and you're looking at yourself Instead of to him, and then the next week, you know, it doesn't go so well, and now it's like, man, I'm pretty far from him now. Instead of like, well, no, his presence with me, um, this relationship he started with me, all of the things that I fall short in, that I bring to the relationship, are met by his perfect character in every single one of them. I'm slow to change, it's meant by him being slow to anger. 
Um, I'm always in need. It's met by his steadfast love, steadfast, immovable, and never stops, never goes away. You know, all my failures to keep his commands, to do what he says, that's met by his grace and his mercy um, and his forgiveness, relieving me of the penalty for those things. And Moses, he got to see God's glory and his goodness. And the glory and the majesty and splendor and, and the magnitude of God's character isn't shown primarily in how he responds to our obedience, but how he responds when we disobey. All his character traits here are showing, this is my character when you disobey Israel. This is my character when you're unfaithful. It's the same to us. You know, church, you know, Jesus' body, this is how I respond to you when you disobey. This is how I respond to you when you fall short. This is how I respond when you're weak and needy uh, and, and ask me for things. When Nick, Nick talked about, like, you know, when we move in with somebody, all of a sudden they have all these needs. And when God moves in with us, when we move in with God, when he moves into us, he knows we have all these needs, and he's come to meet all of them. That's the whole point of it. We're supposed to be needy. And over time, you know, these different habits and different likes um, and different traditions or whatever things that we hold that are different from God, um, over time, if you think about, like, a Venn diagram, when we first, like, get in relation with God, there's, like, here's our desires and our will, here's God's desires and his will, and there's like maybe one little part that overlaps, which is like, I need salvation. And he's like, I know you do, and I'm going to provide it. But then over time, like those circles overlap more and more, and that's like when we're walking in God's will, walking in God's ways, it's like my desires, my will, my plans, my purposes have become one with God, and I'm walking with him. And God proves his love for us in that while we stu- we're still sinners, Romans 5, 8, before we cleaned ourselves up, before we got in our acts together, before we obeyed everything he said, while we were still doing the opposite of what he said, breaking our relational commitments, resisting his lordship for our lives. Romans 5, 8 says, while that was still true, Christ died for us. If you could clean yourself up to be worthy of God's presence, um, then Jesus would have never had to die. Why was Jesus born? Why would God go through so much trouble you know, to be born of a virgin, to be put on flesh, Um, to grow up for 30 years and then die on a cross. Why would God go through all that trouble if it was ever possible for us to be safe in his presence without without him? And if you think about discipleship, Jesus called people to be his disciples. Discipleship is about being a learner. And it's all about learning to look away from ourselves and look to God. And every week in our service, we do confession um, and then a prayer of forgiveness. And when we're confessing, we look at ourselves and we look and we see man, this is, I am unworthy to be in God's presence. I have sinned. I have fallen short. I'm, I've messed up this week. But then if we stay there, we're just going to be burdened. We're going to be filled with guilt to that. And so then we look to ourselves, and then we look to God, and we say, but God, you're gracious. You're merciful. Bounding is steadfast love. And so I give this to you, and I rely on you as the one who can keep me in this relationship. And as we close, just thinking about being roommates, it's like, if God and us moved in, God's going to do everything perfect. There's no imperfections in his character. There's no shadows in it. And if we moved in and God wasn't gracious and merciful, we'd quickly be moving out or uh, you know, we'd be incinerated or something like that. But we move in and with God, we're, when we're wanting to be with God, we're, our, what we express to him is, I want to be with you. Like Moses is praying here, I want to be with you. I want to please you. I want to obey you. And I know I'm unworthy to be living, have you living with me. Please forgive me. Give me the strength to follow. And it's relying on his character, who he is, 
um, to keep us in that relationship and not on who we are or what we can do. Let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, this reminder about how you do respond to sin and our weakness and our neediness. Uh, you don't respond by just watching to see if we've hit our goodness quota this week, and if we don't, hit a big red buzzer and you know send us to the trap door away from you. And you're not looking to see if our sinfulness meets a certain threshold and then now it's time to get rid of us. But when we come to Jesus, uh, we are cleansed of it, we're pardoned, and Jesus came so that we could be in your presence. Would you help us live in light of that? In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.